ancient town of Nazareth, which is about 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee and the city of Capernaum, which in Mark's gospel, that's the gravitational pull of all the events that he's been writing. It's primarily on the Sea of Galilee, around the town of Capernaum. And so during Jesus' day, Nazareth, it's really like a very small, obscure village. Um, there's that saying that even comes out of the gospels, like, does anything good does anything important ever come from this town, right? It's the city itself, the geography, it's carved into the walls of these cliffs, like very rocky terrain. And it had probably in Jesus's day fewer than like 500 people in it. So think like Maupin, Oregon, right? Um, there's, there's cities in Oregon that have lower populations, but Maupin's about 500 people. So um, anybody come from a small town like that? Anybody come from a small, like a population less than a thousand, like close to 500, right? If you come from a small town like that, you know the reality. You know that just everyone knows everyone in that town, right? And, and usually everyone in small town is all up in everyone's business all the time, right? Like word travels fast. It's hard to keep secrets. And so, so Mark wants us to know that, that Jesus comes from very humble beginnings, right? He's a small town nobody from a nowhere town. But when he comes back to Nazareth at this point, he's basically a celebrity, right? So, so let's look at this and see if we can figure out what's going on here. We'll kind of walk back through this. Verse 1 and 2. So he went away from there. That's Capernaum, Sea of Galilee. And he came, came to his hometown, Nazareth. Um, and again, there's confusion. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. And, and so his disciples follow him, right? And on the Sabbath, he began to teach. So just back up real quick. His disciples followed him. Like that, that is like the rudimentary, the rudimentary like definition of what it means to be a disciple. Like they're doing discipleship. They're, they're following Jesus, right? And so then it says on the Sabbath, so, so note that in your brains, like we've had a lot of Sabbath. Sabbath comes up a lot in Mark's gospel. So it's on the Sabbath, and he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hand? So they've heard of Jesus. His, his fame has spread, or, or maybe his infamy has spread. And they've got some questions, right? And we see this as really a regular rhythm that Jesus establishes early on in his ministry, which is when he arrives to a particular location, a town, one of his first stops is the synagogue, right? He's known as a rabbi. He's called teacher. And so he has authority to show up. Now, interesting, um, in that day, you could show up to any synagogue and anybody could jump up, grab the mic, and teach or read or whatever. So um, we're probably not going to start implementing that here at Hub City, although you would probably get much better sermons than what Matt and I are capable of. But so he just, he's allowed to do that, right? And he begins to, to teach there, right? And so, so what does he do? He, he, he picks up um, the, the, the scriptures, right? And, and while we're not told by Mark specifically what Jesus teaches, if you look to Luke chapter 4 as like the parallel passage to this, what we know from, from Luke's account of this story is that he was teaching from this ancient manuscript that was most commonly called the book of Isaiah. So it's about this prophetic message that, that Isaiah as a prophet brings to the nation of Israel. And so Jesus, like, doesn't have a tablet, right? Doesn't have a, a physical Bible. He's got this scroll. So he, he unrolls the scroll and, and then he lands on what we would call chapter 61. Although the original manuscript is not read like that. It doesn't have chapters. It doesn't have verses. We break that up for clarity and understanding for us. 
But if you were to flip to the point of Isaiah chapter 61, here's what you would see. You would see that it paints this amazingly beautiful picture of what life will be like under the righteous reign and rule of God's Messiah. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, he just reads the scroll. He doesn't add any exposition. He doesn't say anything about it. He just reads it, and then he takes a seat. And then silence fills the room, and everyone's looking at each other like a bit confused, and they're thinking, like, is he done? Is that all he's going to do, right? Is there anything more? Does he have anything more to say? And listen, I get it. Some of you are thinking right now, because you know what you're in for. You're thinking, I kind of wish Randall would just come up and read chapter 6 and then sit down, right? Um, Jesus does all of that. He just reads it. He sits down, doesn't make a single pop culture reference. And then everybody's just, like, looking around going, like, is is that it? Is he going to say anything else, right? Here's what Jesus says in response. He says, today, all of this has been fulfilled in your hearing, right? And what he's saying is, like everything that I just read to you, that's all written about me. That's all true about me. I am the long-awaited Messiah, and now I am here not just to read these words from Isaiah to you, but to actually lift them off the page and live them out in front of you. So, what we see after Jesus does this, it was a very polarizing moment in the synagogue in Nazareth. Look at verse 3, right? Uh, and just keep in mind those words. They're like, man, they were astonished at his teaching. That's what we've heard all along, is that everybody that heard Jesus teach, they're amazed, they're astonished at his, t- at his teaching. But then look at verse 3, because there's a quick flip there, right? They start going, hey, is this not the, the, the carpenter, the, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and, and Judas, and Simon, and, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. See that quick flip from like astonishment to like, wait a minute. We know this guy, right? Because, because despite them being amazed at his teaching, they're like, this is, this is Jesus. Like, we're familiar with this guy. We grew up with this guy. We know him. And that doesn't register in our brains because we expected the Messiah to, to show up, right, in, in splendor and in glory with pomp and circumstance. But, like, we just watched this guy kid grow up like we know his brothers and his sisters that there's there's no way he's the messiah it, it can't be which which is what you would say any reasonable person would say that if somebody that you grew up with claimed to be the messiah you should probably say that if somebody says i'm the messiah right like it's just too shocking to them that the actual messiah would have a messiah complex right because and here's what we need to understand like he he's He's just, a, he's, to, him, to them, he's just a carpenter, right? Or, or the word in, in the Greek could actually be translated, he's a stonemason. But either way, Jesus is a construction worker. In other words, he's, for them, he's, just, he's so basic and common. He's, he's like one of them. He's a blue-collar worker, right? Which all day long, I would rather hang out with blue-collar workers than academics. But they're kind of rejecting him because of that, right? How, how can he be the Messiah, right? So, so they start to question really everything about Jesus in that moment, even, even raising questions about his lineage, right? So they throw in Mary. They're like, isn't this Mary's son? Which, which we need to read, which we don't, but we need to read that actually as an insult to Jesus, to his family, right? Because this is a patriarchal culture, and so you would be known always as the son of your father, even if your father's dead, that's how you would always be identified, right? And so they, they kind of take this little dig at him also because Mary, 
in their eyes has a very disreputable background, right? And so they're saying, like, we're going to break how we would always identify you, and we're going to associate you now with your mother, who, like, we got some big questions about. Like, we know the story, but really, like, we know what Mary was up to. So it's all meant to be offensive towards Jesus and an insult. And they're saying, like, we don't, we don't really know who this guy's dad is, honestly. Like, we know the story, but does that really mean? Like, there's no way. So we don't know who this guy's dad is. We can't trust him. And they're beginning to be obstinate against Jesus. I mean, they're so excited to hear his word, but it doesn't produce faith in them. It actually produces rebellion and rejection. They begin to ask these like probing questions and, and push back against him. And the scriptures, like if you look at the very last piece of verse three, it says that they took offense at him. And the Greek word that Mark uses here for offense is scandalon. And it's where we get our English word scandal from. And the implication is this. The people were scandalized by Jesus and by his words and by the Messiah and by the gospel and by the kingdom. And they were so deeply offended that they didn't want to have any identification with him because he's an embarrassment to them, that he shamed them, right? But, but there's also another way that the word was used throughout Scripture, and it's so fitting, right? That word scandalon was also used of a stone that would be used for a building or foundation, actually not even used. It was a stone specifically that as the craftsman was sorting through all the stones, they would find any that had blemish or were faulty or didn't meet the standards of building that wall or building the foundation for that house, and they would identify it as scandalon, and they would toss it away. It was rejected, right? It was an imperfect stone. It was faulty. And so they would just toss it aside and say, it doesn't meet the standards by which we should construct this building, this fence, whatever. And so unlike the stones that those stonemasons would find and then reject, Jesus, we know, was not faulty. He, he was rejected, but he, he wasn't blemished. Jesus wasn't rejected because he was faulty or blemished. He was rejected primarily because it was foretold that he would be, right? It's always a part of God's redemptive plan that the Messiah would be rejected. Look at Psalm 118.22. It says that the stone that the builders rejected, that, they, that was scandal on, um, has become now the cornerstone, right? So, so what that would mean in just away from the Messiah, it would just mean like that faulty, blemished stone actually became the key piece of this building, right? The key piece of, and so instead of rejecting that, they use it, right? So, so Jesus will actually go on in chapter 12 to quote this verse about himself. Peter quotes it about Jesus as he gives an account before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. Isaiah tells us in 53 that the Messiah, the Messiah will be rejected, will be despised amongst people. So Jesus, now in this story, that, that, that's coming true. He's rejected by his hometown, by his people, by his family, his neighbor, his classmates, and ultimately we'll see the entire nation of Israel, the one who God the Father appointed to be the cornerstone of his redemptive plan was considered flawed and repulsive by the very people he came to save. And so they toss him aside. So all this begs the question, like, why? Why reject him? Well, they, they reject him simply because he's too much like them. Like, they're offended because Jesus is too normal and too boring. He's just a blue-collar worker who happens to be the Messiah, right? And it's no less true today. Jesus is offensive to our culture and our modern progressive sensibilities. The gospel is provocative and offensive even today, 
Because it's this radically subversive news that, that there is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. And he accepts and approves of you because the grace given through the cross and in our system of meritocracy where our individual efforts gain status, security, access, wealth, privilege, whatever, to, to, to hear that in God's economy, there's nothing that you can do. Like That's just offensive to them. It's offensive to us today because if my hard work and all of my effort can't earn God's favor and approval, then what else could? And so the answer, of course, is, is nothing because you can't because Jesus has already earned it for you. So the gospel is, is so simple. Right? It's so simple to understand, and it's meant to be simple to understand, and yet it's so offensive even today. It's offensive because it confronts the things in our lives that we absolutely think that we're right about. And Jesus, I love it, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender here, right? He's offensive to the religious elite and the everyday people. He's offensive to the Roman soldier and the small town nobody in Nazareth. Jesus shows up and he confronts everyone's cultural idols. He challenges everyone's assumptions. So no matter what your ideology is, no matter what side of the fence that you land on, if you're red or blue or conservative or progressive, Jesus and the gospel will scandalize and offend you. He simply fits into no worldly category. The king and his kingdom are in opposition to this sinful worldly system because every position and every ideology that we hold on to is rooted in this system of this fallen broken world and jesus shows up and says there's a whole different thing happening that is reality which is the gospel which is my kingdom because jesus is not of this world and so he scandalizes this world at every single turn and so the world rejects the king and his kingdom now, Jesus knows, of course, what's going on here, right? And so he borrows from this ancient Jewish idiom, this saying, and, and he repeats it now in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his, own, his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household, right? So this great status of prophet, right, accepted everywhere else, but when there's familiarity, that breeds contempt, and he will be rejected amongst his people, right? And then he goes on to say, and how, or he could do mighty, or he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I love that. Like, that's just a weird little note for Mark. He's like, oh, Jesus could do no great mighty work, you know, besides just laying his hands on people. And he, he's still doing amazing things. Mark is just saying, like, yeah, he's not doing all of the amazing things, right? And so, of course, Jesus is still still with people, despite them rejecting him, he's still going to heal them. He's still going to love them. He's still going to treat them with compassion and grace, right? And then look at Jesus's response. And it's really, excuse me, like twofold here. It says, um, he marveled because of their unbelief. So that's the first time that we actually see in, in Mark's, like Mark's account has said words like they were astonished at Jesus, at his teaching, at the things he was doing. And now Jesus is astonished at the people, right? He's marveled at their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching, right? So, so Jesus marvels at their unbelief, but here's what we need to understand. He, he wasn't surprised 
that they were unbelieving. That's not what that is saying. That's not what Mark's saying there. He was surprised at just how deep their unbelief went and just how hard their hearts had become. Because God's own Messiah, Jesus, is standing before the people that he grew up with. And he just read this beautiful picture of what life under Jesus' righteous reign and rule will look like. And it's so much better than what they're experiencing in this story. And, and they say, nope, that's not for us. Like, they reject that. So Jesus knew that they would be unbelieving. He's marveling at just how deep their resistance and rejection of him is running. They see Jesus. And keep in mind, what are they seeing when they see Jesus in front of them? Like, what are they seeing? Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. They're seeing God in front of them, and they're rejecting him, and they criticize him, and in their unbelief, they become increasingly hostile towards him and the disciples. So, so you simply cannot be indifferent or apathetic when it comes to Jesus. Nobody is. I've never honestly met a person that's like, eh, I'm kind of cool with Jesus, whatever. It's either like, I'm on board, or no way, right? Jesus is a polarizing figure, and he's a scandalizing figure. So, of course, there's no, like, you know, fence sitting when it comes to Jesus. And then look what he does next, right? He went out among, among the villages and, and began teaching in them, right? So, so Jesus, upon being rejected, what does he do? He leaves. He goes out to the other surrounding villages, and he begins to teach them there. And at least in Mark's gospel, there's no mention of Jesus ever returning to Nazareth, like his hometown, ever again. So, and, and, and we just need to keep that, like what is Mark trying to say through that, right? Just let that sink in for a minute, though. Like, like we know that in his character, God is merciful, and that he's gracious, and that I mean, the psalmist repeatedly say that he is slow to anger and he's kind and he's abounding in love. He's not hasty. He's slow to bring about his judgment. And he gives his kids every opportunity to trust and submit to Jesus' righteous reign and rule over their lives. But what we see here is that it's not an infinite opportunity. Like we talked about this a few weeks ago when we had to walk through that difficult discussion of what it truly means to grieve the Holy Spirit. It's our hearts becoming more increasingly hardened towards the things of God, and it moves us into a position where we reject the truth of the gospel over and over again, and it does have a finality to it. And so, listen, I'm not saying that, that God's grace doesn't continue to go forth in this story to the people of Nazareth, but we're also meant to see that there's an urgency to this, right? And there is a window in God's grace as it closes in, in this lifetime for you. God extends this invitation to us. He displays the glory of himself through the gospel and in Jesus' incarnation. And that invitation is on the table. But in our lives, it's not on the table always. Like we know that we are not infinite beings. Like this life will come to an end and we have this life to choose what we do with Jesus? Do we submit to his reign and rule over our life, or do we not? And so if you persist, or persist in rejecting the king and his kingdom, 
And as the hardness of your heart continues to fester and grow, as you become more resistant and hardened to the gospel, the window on that invitation is is running out. Because we see in this passage that the window closes for Nazareth, and he leaves, and he moves on and begins to preach the gospel and display the kingdom in places where it will be received. Mark 4.25 is essentially like playing out this narrative, right? When Jesus says this, For to the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Nazareth had Jesus in this story, but they rejected him, and in a sense, we're meant to see like they lost him, right? And, and, and as you listen to this today, if, if, if your heart has been hardened to the gospel, like if you throw up the walls of resistance, please do not allow your heart to continue to resist and grow cold and grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually inviting you into your life to soften your heart, to turn in repentance and believe and to trust in Jesus as the righteous king. And listen, I love all of you far too much to not tell you that. I have to tell you that. I have to let you know, man, there's grace and there's compassion, but that invitation has a closing window in our life. Like, I don't want to sound like the classic Baptist preacher but, but the real, I can't escape the truth of the reality. Like, like, we know that this is it. We have this opportunity to respond in faith to Jesus. I'd love to stand up here and say, hey, love wins. Like I've said this before. Like in the end, love will win, but the reality is love has already won. Love won on the cross when it conquered sin and death and Satan and gave us an opportunity to be restored and reconciled to God. And so you have that opportunity now today to trust in Jesus it's kind of the point. And if that offends you, like it's supposed to, right? So now we're going to flip to the next part of the story, which like honestly, at first glance, like when you kind of read these two stories, like I had to struggle at first, like what are these two things? Why, why am I preaching these two things together? Because they can seem a little disconnected, but these two narratives are so intricately woven together, right? Jesus being rejected has implications for the disciples, obviously. Like, so let's Look at this story beginning in verse 7 here, this next one. So he calls the twelve and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Okay? So let's pause there for a sec. So remember... It's not been that long in Mark's gospel, like chapter 3, when, when Jesus called this group of people to follow him, and then he commissions them as apostles, right? And we're told what happens, or we'll go back to that. And, and by the very nature, we need to understand, by the very nature of what it means to be an apostle of Jesus is that you were to be sent out, okay? Look at, look at what Mark wrote um, in, in verse 14 and 15 back there. He said, and he appointed the twelve when he also named them apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority and to cast out demons. So, so they knew that this was what was coming for them, right? But it doesn't seem like, it's like two and a half chapters that we get before Jesus is now sending them out. No, I just, that's not enough time. Like Jesus, how could you trust these guys with this? They haven't been trained properly. They haven't gone to seminary. They haven't attended no conferences on how to be missional. They've not read a book about evangelism. Like, how are they going to do this? Like, you see, we have this idea in the church today that discipleship equals knowledge, 
right? And the more knowledge that you gain, the more that you're growing in your discipleship, that, that somehow mere intellectual assent is the goal in and of itself. That's why we invented things like sword drills and Bible Jeopardy and Awanas, right? Like just pump as much information into these kids as we can because it's all about knowledge. I mean, yes, you have to know some things. Please, as Jesus followers, please know some things. It's important. Like, but we've built this like academic trajectory into our discipleship that says you have to get like every Bible knowledge merit badge before you live out mission. But, but, but none of that is what Jesus does with his followers. He takes these 12 misfits, some of who didn't make the cut when it came to like finding a rabbi to instruct them. They were already rejected by a rabbi, and so that's why they returned to their family businesses of fishing or tax collecting or whatever. So they've already felt the bitter sting of rejection from a rabbi, right? They basically dropped out of discipleship school back in the day. But Jesus now simply invites them to walk and talk with him. Like, we don't have a record in Mark's gospel of them doing any of these things before Jesus sends them out, right? All we know is that they just simply followed Jesus while he did those things, and they observed him while he did those things because they were learning, right? They're watching through observation. They're learning through observation. And and now he's going to send them out, and honestly, most likely, they're absolutely not ready for this. Like, there's no way they're ready for this, right? It's almost as Jesus is sending them out full well knowing that they're going to be rejected and they're going to fail, right? So he sends them out with a buddy. Like, let's always go out in the buddy system, right? So they're never alone in this. And then he gives them some packing instructions for their journey, which is don't pack anything, right? No food, no water, no money, only one tunic, Duh. They're not in the Rockies. Of course, just one tunic. The reality to the tunic is they would put on two tunics when they would travel. And if they were rejected, um, just any, this is part of the culture. Like if you could not find a place that would receive you with hospitality, like somebody wouldn't invite you into your home, at least you had something that you could set up as a tunic. You keep the one tunic on, right? But then you would set up that other tunic as a tent, as shelter. And so he's saying no shelter. Don't take a second tunic with you, right? And so he sends them out. And the point is that growing in discipleship, right? Growing in our discipleship is not as much about intellectual ascent as it is about dependency. And Jesus is giving them a crash course on dependency here, right? Because not only are they going to have to go out and preach, they're going to have to go do these miraculous healings He's saying, you're going to go out and cast out demons, hashtag save the pigs, right? And they're going to have to do this with absolutely no resources, nothing. Their ministry budget, zero, right? And so Jesus sends them out with nothing so that they would be dependent upon God at every turn and every situation through this whole experience. You see, this mission that Jesus is sending them out on is so important. Jesus wants them to know it can never be accomplished apart from God. Not, there's no time, no matter how competent you are, no, how, no matter how many books you read, no matter how proficient you are in it, in yourself, no matter how much you train for it, apart from God and being dependent upon the Holy Spirit to bring the power, to bring the work, it doesn't happen apart from God. 
It'll never be accomplished within your own resources and your own competency. It's so important that it can only be done in the power of God as you're dependent upon God. That's the lesson here for the disciples. They're going to fail. They fail. They're going to get rejected. They get rejected. But God sends them out anyway. I think the other part is, is the sense of like urgency in which all of this is happening. He sends them out with intention, with urgency. Don't take anything, just go. And, and while this mission was very specific to the apostles, there's a sense in which we today are also sent out in the same posture of urgency and dependency. Jesus today has his church. Hub City exists, not because Hub City dreamt up some great mission, but, but, but Hub City exists, and Jesus has a church for his mission to fulfill and to live out. And the mission is this. It's making, it's super easy. Just making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, right? And that means this. Like, that's not just about conversion, right? It certainly means I want to walk with you and live my life out in front of you. And I understand that you are not yet following Jesus, but I want to show you this compelling reality of what life in the kingdom looks like to the end of which we would love for you to submit to Jesus and follow this. But it also looks like this. It also looks like a room filled like this because none of us have arrived, right? None of us have figured this out. We're far from perfect. And so discipleship is happening in this room and it happens in our hub communities and it happens as we join together and live out mission. Like we still need to be made disciples of in this room and we desperately need the gospel to make us disciples of Jesus. And so that's the mission, to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Like Jesus is very clear. He's going he's gonna to import his life. He's going to pour in to these people because he knows that they're going to carry out and fulfill the mission. He does that not by asking you to get a degree first, right? Not to wait until everything is settled in your life and your life is not a mess. Good luck with that one. He's saying like, like right now, with a sense of intention and urgency, you are sent, Hub City, you are sent by the very nature of following Jesus. You are sent out. You are deployed to our culture, to our city, to your neighborhoods. Go in obedience. Go in dependence. Go with God as your only resource. But to know that you are resourced with the infinite wealth of the living God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, called and equipped by Jesus the Son, and you think, like, if I can just get a little bit smarter... Like, you have everything you need in the living God. He's equipped you perfectly for this mission. So understanding the mission that we've been called to should not cause us to run away from it. It should cause us to lean into Jesus even more, going, I can't do this, but Jesus can, and he does. Like, I'm here, and you're here as a follower of Jesus, not so much because a person shared the gospel with you, but because God's power and the Holy Spirit spoke deeply to your heart brought the gospel to life and you submitted to that, right? And so, Hub City, this is it. This is us. Like, I want to read this that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It's no less true of us today. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, right? You being a new creation is from God. You did nothing to accomplish it of yourself. This is all from God 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. There is nothing more true about you today than those words. You're a new creation. You're reconciled to God. You're an ambassador for Christ. You are a sent one. You are sent to carry out the good news of the gospel and live out the beautiful peace and shalom of the kingdom. Listen, I want to be gracious in this and, and not too harsh, but I think it's all too easy for us to just fall into this way of living where we just don't have a sense of urgency for this mission. Like I've really been wrestling with this story all week and I've been thinking like, what is it about the way I live? Me personally, not you guys, but just me personally, my family, my wife. What is it about the way that we live? Where in my life is it observable that I'm on mission? And listen, here's the deal. I'm not going to tell you where and how. I might invite some of you to join me in that, right? Some of us went out yesterday. Um, there's a few people from Hub City, and that was me saying, let me invite you into this mission that I'm living out, right? So like, just like Jesus, I'll just, I'll just kind of invite you guys into it. We should invite each other into where we are living that out. But you need to address first, like, where is it in my lifestyle? That might be confronted to you, right? But you also have to ask, what suggests about your lifestyle that you see a need for dependency? Where is dependency upon the gospel and Jesus being declared in your life? And you see this sense of urgency for the mission. Jesus restore Albany that he's tasked us with, right? It's a hard question to wrestle with. And the answer to that question is probably even more difficult to face than the question itself. And listen, before you take a sigh of relief, like we're through it all, don't. <laughs> because it actually gets a little bit worse here, right? Look at this. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, you don't have another tunic, right? And they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed the gospel, or proclaimed to people that they should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed it with oil, many who were sick and healed them. So, most importantly here to that and to us is, did you hear that little phrase there that Jesus said, right? He said, like, so like, I've been rejected, and if you follow me, essentially what Jesus is saying, like, you will too you will be rejected, right? So the promise of following Jesus is that you will be rejected. <laughs> Suffering and rejection, right? Now, now let me point this out real quick because this is important. Rejection is not persecution, okay? We need to keep that in our minds. Like I think here in America, we all too quickly jump to, we're being persecuted. You're not. You're being rejected. That is just the status of somebody who follows Jesus. Now, now, rejection can lead to persecution, certainly, but, but rejection is not persecution. Rejection is just the natural condition of someone who is a follower of Jesus, right? Jesus says, I have been rejected, and if you follow me, so will you. Because submitting to King Jesus and, and his kingdom instantly places you in a rejected status to the sinful broken world in its system. It's why Paul would write, 
You've been transferred in Christ from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son that I love. And that puts you in opposition, in a position of rejection. You rejected the world in surrendering to Christ and his kingdom. Now you will be rejected by the world and its system. Let's be important to be clear. It's the world and its system. It's not people, right? People come under that system and people will reject the message of the gospel. But, but we don't point adversarially to people. We just recognize it's the world and its system because our declaration of Jesus as a good king who has a good kingdom is rejecting now that worldly system. And so it's so significant that we kind of understand that in our confession, we're rejecting the world. Here's why this is so significant in the story. By Jewish custom and law, if someone sends you out, you go with the authority of the one who sent you. You represent them, right? So the apostles are sent out as representatives of Jesus, which means if you receive them, it's as if you were receiving Jesus. And conversely, when someone rejected them, they were also rejecting Jesus. So Jesus bluntly warns them here, you're going to face rejection and it's going to hurt, right? That's why he said in John 15, 18, 19, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. Not, or, but because you are not of this world anymore, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. You see, there's this great responsibility that you and I carry, right? And that's to be faithful to represent Jesus well when we go, which means that we should live lives of humility, we should be meek like Jesus was meek. We should be gentle like Jesus was gentle. We should live lives of servanthood like Jesus did. We should live a sacrificial life like Jesus did. We should be winsome as we seek the good of others. We should be gentle and humble. But if you follow Jesus, just know that there will be a time when you will be offensive. But if you follow Jesus, right, because, because the message that we embrace, the gospel, necessitates it, right? It's because the gospel is this. It's the aroma of life to some, but it's the stench of death to others. But it must be proclaimed. So just like Jesus was rejected, you will be rejected. And, and see that as much as like it's a rejection of you, of course it's a rejection of the offensive, scandalous gospel. And at some point, just know this, because of the gospel, you will be offensive. Now, I'm not like giving you permission to just go out and like be an offensive person, right? But just so to be clear here, right? Just understand this. Like if, if you're never offensive, if you never find yourself in that place where like you're being rejected or offensive, you might have to wrestle through like, am I actually proclaiming the gospel? Right, because it will be offensive every time to, to an unregenerate human heart. Right? So, so you need to ask yourself, if, if, I'm never, if I'm hanging out with people that are not yet following Jesus, and they're never offended or rejected you know, by anything that I say, like you might be hiding behind. So you might be trying to make this so relevant to them to fit in, but you're actually not speaking the truth and love to people. You're not declaring the gospel. You're not living it out. Like you had opportunity to share, and you know that the message will be offensive, and so you choose not to. And then conversely of that, listen, if you're always offensive— like, if you're always offending people, just understand, you might have left Jesus way back. It's just because you're an offensive person. Like, it may have nothing to do with the gospel in you, but if you're constantly offensive to people, it might just be you, right? Um, 
And, but you will be rejected, right? But, but here's, here's the good news for us. So like, like, I hope you hear this today, right? It's a challenging message filled with challenging like, points of action for us to live out, right? So, so I'd say one, hopefully, um, as difficult as some of this can be, it infuses your heart with a new desire to live out Jesus Restore Albany in our city. Like, and I think we should. I think as we, as we come to this point, as, as things begin to alter and change, and we've come through this very difficult season, right, we need to understand, like, I believe that God's on the precipice of doing something amazing through his church, right? And so we need to be poised and ready. Like, the church is built for this moment because, we, because in a season of nothing but bad news, the church does have good news, and that good news will be rejected. It will be offensive, but it'll also hit home in the human heart, and disciples will be made. And so we need to be poised and ready for this. And there's also just this good news of this. This is how you gospel yourself today, right? Because nobody likes the reality of being rejected. Like, we've all felt the bitter sting of rejection, right? Right? Probably when you were in middle school, right? <laughs> it's just the season for it. But here's the good news of the gospel is this, that, that you have found acceptance today from God the Father. The only one whose acceptance really matters. Like, how do you deal with that type of rejection? You go to the gospel. You rehearse the gospel in your heart. Jesus was rejected, as Isaiah says. He was despised and rejected by men. He was well acquainted with the sting and sorrow of rejection. Jesus on the cross experienced the ultimate rejection, so you and I could experience the ultimate acceptance. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why, why did you forsake me? Why did you leave me here? Why did you reject me in this moment? It's the only time in the Gospels where Jesus does not refer to God as Father. Jesus truly became one without a father on the cross so that you and I could be adopted into God's family and be called daughters and sons of the Most High God, man, this is the only acceptance that matters. And it only comes through the gospel of Jesus, through his righteous life lived on your behalf, through his sacrificial death on the cross for you, to wipe away your sins, to make you new, to be reconciled to God, and to bring you into this beautiful and messy, difficult at times, hard family right? And that means you can handle any worldly rejection. Like, I'm not saying it won't hurt. I'm just saying it won't crush you because you know to whom you belong. You know whose approval you really have, and not because of anything that you've done, because of Jesus in your place. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failures and your flaws and your hang-ups and your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus, and he smiles on you today with delight and acceptance, and approval. Let's respond to the good news of the gospel today. We're going to do that in a few ways here at Hub City. We would invite you to respond in singing. And so Austin's going to come back up here, and he's going to lead us through some songs. And it could be simply that for you in this moment, right? You could, you could treat it like a concert, right? Or you could participate in worshiping the one true king. So we would invite you to sing not sing to me, not sing to the person next to you, but sing to our good king. Have some moments you can stop and you can communicate and pray. Um, we'd encourage you to that end. We'd also ask um, if Hub City is your home 
that uh, another unique way that God calls us to worship is to be generous. We give back to God what he's so freely and given to us. And so we will give today and we give um, so that we can simply live out this mission, that we can be good news to our city. So we would invite you to give through worship. You can do that in a few ways today. You can give online. Uh, we've got, I think, that black box on the way out. You can get, put a check in there or whatever. And then finally, um, the most beautiful expression of what it means to be united to Jesus in life and his death. We get to go to the tables this morning and we get to receive Jesus's free gift of grace that was given to us. And we do that in kind of a weird way in the church. We celebrate that in a weird way. We take a piece of bread and we take a um, cup of grape juice or wine and, and we, we receive that. We do that because that's what Jesus did with his disciples. He was sitting down for a very important meal with them and he took a piece of bread and he took a cup and he said, this bread is my body, my body that's going to be broken for you so that you could have life with me. And this cup is my blood which is poured out for you so you could have life in the kingdom.